This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with George Estreich. George Estreich's publications include a book of poems, textbook illustrations of the human body, which won the Gorsline Prize from Cloud Bank Books, the Oregon Book Award-winning memoir, The Shape of the Eye, and Fables and Futures, Biotechnology, Disability, and the Stories We Tell Ourselves, which NPR's Science Friday named a best science book of 2019. Estrike has also published prose in the New York Times, Salon, the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics, Tin House, Essay Daily, and McSweeney's Internet Tendency. He lives in Corvallis, Oregon with his family, where he teaches in Oregon State's MFA program in creative nonfiction. You can learn more about George's work at georgeestrike.com. Hi, George. Hi. How are you doing, Deb? I wanted to start off by maybe reading outside of the book and looking at the cover, right? We judge our books by their cover. The jacket for your extraordinary book, Fables and Futures, describes its ambitious aim as seeking out to explore what you call, and I'm quoting you here, the troubled territory where biotechnology and disability meet. So where do biotechnology and disability meet? Describe that intersection for us. For me, they meet in a conversation. So just to back up a little bit, I I was writing this book and thinking about it now in a, a very interesting time in history, which is to say we are at a moment in the United States where we've made significant cultural progress for people with disabilities. You know, we've often moved beyond a pity model, a tragedy model, though not nearly far enough, to a model of citizenship and rights. And there's more cultural acceptance, including for people with intellectual disabilities, like my daughter, Laura, who has Down syndrome. That's one strand. On the other hand, we have ever more powerful biotechnology in that it's able to read and write DNA as our standard metaphor goes. And this gives us more power to select and potentially shape future people. I see them as almost like two rivers that are colliding. Who counts as human? What forms of human we value, what minds we value are all colliding, all these cross currents and so on. That's the territory that I'm exploring. On the one hand, you can see narratives of biotech where disability is mainly seen as a physical error. Uh, You can see narratives from people in disability studies and disability rights activists where disability is an active part of identity. It's not a defect. It's something to be proud of. And those are two incompatible conceptions. And so I'm interested in that collision. You know, I think most academics, including myself, come to our writing and and most writers come to their topics with some sort of background informing what they think. You mentioned your daughter, Laura. What led you to become interested in this intersection? What questions compelled this interest. Walk us through how you got to asking the questions that you do in this book. That's a really great question. The one word answer is Laura. Laura was uh, born in 2001. And before she came along, I had already been interested in family and inheritance and even in DNA and wrote about them in poems. But Laura's arrival required me to rethink everything. And it including required me to confront the kind of misconceptions I had, the expectations I had about a parent. Like what what ideas did I hold about what child I wanted or expected and how did that clash with the reality and what did it all mean? For nine years, I was working on a memoir that was much more narrative than Fables and Futures about raising Laura, not so much like the trauma recovery model that's popular, but more narrating how I thought about Laura and how I realized I needed to think about, not about Down syndrome differently, but about people differently. In the course of that book, I came to realize that you can't just think about Down syndrome in isolation. You have to think about the cultural stories we tell about the conditions. And you have to think about the technologies, uh, specifically prenatal testing, that are 
a part of the way we talk about Down syndrome. When I finished The Shape of the Eye, I was still thinking about biotech and, and disability. And so in Fables of Futures, those ideas became center stage. It's, it's a less narrative book, though there's stories in it, and it's more exploring the technologies and, and their meaning to me. Another way of putting this is, you know, in answer to your first question, where do biotechnology and disability meet? Well, they meet in my own life. You write that our understanding of Down syndrome is endlessly complex, but always wedded to the technology of the day. This is, I think, tied to what you were just talking about. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on this point. I mean, I think that if you ask most Americans what they know about Down syndrome beyond the appearance and beyond the stereotypes that they're all pleasant and good natured, the fact most of them would know is the rise in incidence is correlated with maternal age that if you are an older mother, you are, your chances of having a child with Down syndrome go up. That understanding of Down syndrome is wedded to the ability to detect the condition in utero earlier through amniocentesis and now through a relatively new form of prenatal testing called NIPT, non-invasive prenatal testing, which is based on a maternal blood draw. That fact has really sunk into our, our consciousness. And one place where I wrote about this in the book was I came across a, a comedy routine that really troubled me. And this was by uh, the comedian Margaret Cho. She was on a TV show called Watch, Watch What Happens Live. And she was talking about the what she saw as the trials of of being an older mother. And she made a joke about, I, I don't have the exact quote, but the, it was something along the lines of, you know, my eggs are jumping ship and they're saying the last one out's a retard. She said this, the audience laughed. For her to make that joke and have that joke be legible for like an entire studio audience to immediately laugh, people must have absorbed this understanding, one, that Down syndrome is something that happens is more likely to happen to an older mother, and two, that we can detect this. So it's that understanding, the understanding beneath the joke is interwoven with technology. It wouldn't be possible without uh, prenatal uh, detection. You're also making me realize as you talk that a lot of what you're talking about in terms of the representation of disability is also really tied to you know, very vexed questions in our culture about the representation of women and the representation of other groups who have historically had to fight for representational rights. And I think a major question in the humanities right now, one thing that humanists are very interested in is this question about the nature of intersectionality or how different groups experiencing disempowerment, oppression, underrepresentation um, might productively partner to fight that disempowerment, of oppression, or underrepresentation with an understanding that although our experiences are different, that they share similar structures of ideas that limit their representation. And I think your anecdote is really pointing to the tensions in that kind of intersectionality because, you know, for example, women and people of color might unite in fighting similar structures of power along with the LGBTQ community or the religious minorities, et cetera. And, and here you're showing a moment where actually those connections are very much in tension with one another. And I am curious what the state of disability is at this intersection. How do questions and concerns of disability intersect with the struggles of other groups? Here we're talking about women, but maybe we can expand it more broadly, or, or maybe even conflict with them. And what kind of questions come up when we link disability to race or gender and so on, as they are very much so in this case that you cite with the comedian Margaret Cho? I'm trying to think how many days would be required to answer that question and how many people you would need to call on. I feel that that in a lot of ways that this is so above my pay grade that my answer may be all caveats. But let me give a couple of instances. The Margaret Cho example was really interesting to me because it suggested the way in which ableism aimed at people with intellectual disabilities is still in some corners okay. It can still be seen as edgy as opposed to just bigoted. What was interesting to me about that was that comedy moment showed that that is changing. I actually don't think that disability and the interests of people who are gay or LGBT are inherently intention, quite, quite the opposite. 
I think they are aligned. I think that there are similar similarities in that people who occupy a marginalized and despised category face loss of rights, they face violence, they face incarceration. These things are all aligned. So I think that the backlash to that joke and her later apology suggested that perhaps things are going in the right direction, that the the jokes that used to be A-OK are maybe not so much. I don't know, but I hope so. In terms of intersection, disability can overlay any and all of those categories. The scholar Alison Kafer has a book called Feminist Queer Crip and talks about those intersections. But people who are multiply marginalized, people of color who are also disabled will face prejudice on both counts. So that's really concerning. Historically, what interests me is the role of intellect in particular, and especially the way in which intellect, intellectual disability or an accusation of intellectual disability is foundational to other isms and specifically to racism. So for example, the the historical idea, which is unfortunately very much alive today, one, that you can separate people into, say, five continental races, and two, that some are smarter than others, that's essentially an accusation of intellectual disability and can justify everything from slavery historically to saying, well, why fund Head Start? in in the present because you know if there's just a genetic difference there why would you even bother investing the money so these things i think are interlaced on a very deep level i believe and hope in common cause in the present my last caveat would say it's that in the wake of the murder of george floyd in the wake of the the protests going on it does feel a little strange to talk about this stuff just because what is rightly foregrounded now is the historical violence, historical and present violence towards Black people. When I say that these issues intersect, I think that's absolutely so. But I'm, I, it's very tricky to figure out how to elevate these issues and make clear that it's not a competitive or intention thing for, or things of intention for me. I'm hoping that there can be a matter of common cause. And I think one of the ways that you pursue the common cause and and at the same time, you know, mark the particular rather than necessarily putting this into what I would call an ecology of perhaps comparative suffering or competitive representation is exactly what you do in your book, which is writing from the personal. And I wanted to ask you about one of the things I think is is really interesting as a feature of your writing, which so generously and lucidly walks the balance between theoretical and critical inquiry on the one hand, an inquiry substantiated with references and citations and scientific analysis. And on the other hand, one's that one that I think is so very self-reflective and deeply personal and poetic. And I, I guess this is really a question about form. How do you understand the relationship between the academic inquiry that you take and the departure that you take from that form in your writing in this book? One way to think of this is, is I, I was talking a little bit about this before, but I, I think of this book as the shape of the eye almost turned inside out. So which is to say where the shape of the eye was a memoir that made briefer excursions and to say, let's look at how prenatal testing is talked about. This is a book that focuses more on, say, the technology and rhetoric and has briefer narratives used as framing devices and so on. But part of the reason I spliced those together is that I wanted to raise a question about what counts as personal in the first place. You know, in the ecology of book publishing, you know, the memoir is personal and it it focuses on, I don't know, bad stuff that has happened to you or struggles you've had and so on and so forth. But Ideas about justice and belonging are no less personal to me than, you know, a story about playing board games with Laura, for example. And so I just wanted to put them together and to to imply that. And part of antecedent, I guess, is the essay. And it's not to say that these chapters are essays, but more in general, the essay's permission to be heterogeneous, to have many kinds of subject matter in one place. Since we're talking about essay and since we're talking about narrative essay in particular, which is, I think, a thing that the, that the form of the essay very much allows, 
I, I wanted to ask you to elaborate on a claim you make about narrative and technology. You write that every new technology is accompanied by a persuasive story, also a tenant of the essay form, one that minimizes downsides and promises enormous benefits. You call it, and I'm quoting you here, progressive narrative in which science and technology bring us a better world. I'd love to hear you elaborate on this and talk about why narrative enlists disability and frames it in a particular way as you say it does. I was thinking of a narrative of American progress. I got thinking about this because of a paper I read by a historian named Douglas Bainton. And he makes this really interesting argument about the rise of interest in what at the turn of the 20th century were called the feeble-minded or in the rise of the word retarded. Um, he argues that in the transition from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy, to industrial capitalism, that time changed that it became more measured, more regularized. It was less something you did in the home. It was more something you went to a workplace and you were clocked and measured and so on. This places a greater emphasis on efficiency. One consequence of that is that it puts a spotlight on those who don't fit. And his argument is that this idea of progress came to highlight those who were seen as retarding progress as being a drag on progress. And of course, you know, as time went on, this idea had its full flowering in what's sometimes called the mainline era of eugenics between, you know, about 1900 and 1935, in which the so-called feeble-minded were blamed for a host of societal ills and were seen as detracting from American productivity. The progress narrative has intellect at its heart. All of that has little to do with biotechnology because in the you know mainline eugenics, there was no technology. They just would want it to sterilize people or to uh, prevent them from breeding. But now the present time, some of these tropes are still present. And I want to be very clear that when I'm talking about things like prenatal testing or other technologies that I'm I'm not saying that these are inherently eugenic, if only for the reason that once you raise that word that all discussion or productive discussion stops, right? But neither can I say that we've drawn a clean line between the United States then and the United States now. We're still haunted by ideas of intellect. We're still haunted by the idea of normality. In current terms, like for example, I, I spent a lot of time looking at ads for new prenatal tests. There, there was one in particular, it dates to about uh, 2012, where an ad campaign had the uh, slogan, Quality of Science. And what sticks with me was an image of a woman. She was, I would say, late 30s, early 40s. And she was beaming and holding up an ultrasound image of what was uh, presumably a, a normal baby as determined by test. And the tagline was, Better Results Through Better Science. So that, to me, could could have been the a slogan for the eugenic era. You know, a narrative of progress both encompasses where the country is going, and it can also imply, in its specific instances, you know, personal success, personal prosperity. You're getting it at the intersection of two very important, I think, ethical claims made in two very different ways, with I think two very frequently different ends. You know, these technologies are making an ethical claim about the nature of the good. And their technologies are defining in some way and producing a vision of the good. Of course, there's a technological element of that. And I think that at its heart, technology aims at the good. How do we make things better for humans? On the other hand, you're talking about the sphere of eugenics, which is clearly, at least we know retrospectively, a more wrong. Do you... You know, and I'm thinking here of your claim that discussions of biotechnology often take the form of fragmented morality tales. And I'm thinking about, you know, the nature of ethics and how ethics intervenes in all of these things. And of course, the morality tale, which aims to provide some sort of ethical guidance. And, and I'm wondering, and I'm curious what you mean by that, or whether you have a thought about the relationship, the, the very tense relationship of ethics in this context. A lot of questions on the table. What is a morality tale? What are the morals that govern discussions of biotech and where do they come from? And why is it so important for us to identify and understand them? And, and how do ideas of the good um, come in tension in, with one another at this, at this point? 
In this case, I was thinking about the way we talk about biotechnology. I, I think of this book as basically exploring this vast conversation that we're having around biotechnology and disability. And to me, that conversation includes the ads, it includes movies with enhanced humans, it includes op-eds and so on and so forth. One thing I, I came across insistently was I would read op-eds about, say, the use of technology, and I would see them from a narrative standpoint. Like, even though they didn't declare themselves as, and weren't, stories, I saw them as fragmented morality tales, by which I mean they were arguments with characters mixed in. They were stories which had clear-cut characters, clear values, and an obvious lesson. So, for example... Uh, I believe this was in 2015. There was an op-ed in the Boston Globe by the Harvard linguist Steven Pinker. And he was talking about the progress of research. And it, it had this very simple, uh, simplified pitting of good guy scientists at, against bad guy regulation crazy bioethicists. And that too, beneath that was a progress narrative. Like we're trying to get somewhere. We're trying to get to a place where we can eliminate disability and disease. And these other, you know, these, these bad bioethicists are gumming up the works. So to me, that was, though it took the form of an op-ed, it had elements of a morality tale. It had a clear lesson and it had clear characters. A more subtle example was a a feature article in the New York Times about a technology that's sometimes called either three-parent IVF or mitochondrial transfer. And this was a long feature article. But there too, you saw a heroic scientist who was kind of profiled positively in detail and contrasted with the kind of carping negative people who often didn't know as much about the science. To me, it made more sense to draw on my training and experience as a writer and as someone who reads books and writes about them and, and treat them as if they were literature. What are the implied assumptions here? What are the metaphors? What are the characters? What is this add up to? At the same time, Writing like this furnished a counterexample to what I wanted to do because I didn't want to simply counter that and write a morality tale of my own. So, for example, I didn't want to look at incredibly negative takes on disability and say, no, you're wrong, disability is good. I wanted to say, no, you're wrong, disability is complex. And I wanted to have a writing that is more about questions than it is about answers. And that that goes back to your question about, you know, why integrate the personal? And one benefit of that is to highlight my own uncertainties, my partial perspective, my own limits. What you're saying very much resonates with me as a literary scholar. And one thing I think about a lot in the context of teaching literature, particularly teaching literature that seeks to address a history of either misrepresentation or absent representation of groups is that we live the stories we know because the stories we know help us imagine how we might be. And so the more stories we know, the more ways we can imagine the possibilities of and for our reality and, and that of others. What do you think the importance of story is in this context? And in particular, the story you tell. Down syndrome is, is seen in this incredibly contradictory way. So on the one hand, I think a lot of people have a fairly positive apprehension of people with Down syndrome, even if it's based on a false stereotype of being always positive. And yet at, at the same time, there's this sense that like, oh, this is this is tragic. This is a terrible thing. And to me, it kind of adds up to this weirdly, weirdly bifurcated version where it's like good nature and bad nature at once, like they're good natured and then they're bad example of nature gone wrong. And I wanted to, in telling my own story, just to get beyond that, to tell a story that was not tragedy or inspiration, that it was just a different kind of ordinary. I also wanted to get past the fictions of total independence or total dependence and to highlight interdependence, the way in, in which everyone in my family, we depend on each other. I think that storytelling is one way to make complexity immediate. At the same time, you know, my experience is limited and I don't identify as disabled. A big corollary of taking this approach is to say, I only can go so far. I know one person with Down syndrome really, really well. That's it. 
So I try not to generalize. And as for other disabilities, you know, I turned to the best writing I could find from people who were experiencing those. And I'd rather just stand back and say, well, okay, listen to, you know, Rebecca Coakley or whoever, and then try and suggest a complexity that I haven't fully grasped myself. I think you're pointing at something very important about choices you make in your form, as well as in what you uh, write. The key phrase in disability studies is nothing about us without us. There is a demand and an insistence on representation, I think, particularly in light of a history of misrepresentation or of non-representation. What does that mean, nothing about us without us? And what are the implications of this assertion for both your writing and for scholarship? And what about, uh, on the other side of things, um, what about in the sphere of tech culture and in particular biotechnological production. What does it mean to, to demand nothing about us without us in that context? Well, so a couple of things. One is going back to your question about intersectionality, that, that even though that phrase is associated with the disability rights movement, it could be associated with any other group striving for greater representation to determine their own fates and not have their fates determined by others. For me, specifically, you know, as I, I said before, it's like since I don't identify as disabled, I, I try and attend to the voices of people with disabilities. But I did so in a really specific way, which is to say, not just looking for like testimonies, like this is what it feels like, but to highlight people as thinkers, like, not just like what does it feel like to live in this body, but what do you think about it and what do you think about the world from that perspective? One quote that comes to mind, and I, I, I know this from uh, Sarah Hendren, who writes on uh, disability and design, is disability is a site of creativity. And so to treat disability, you know, not as a thing, but as a site of creativity, that is something that is generative, of something that furnishes new and valued perspectives on the world. And ultimately, not as a disability, not simply as a site of difference, but as a basis of commonality, that we all share frailty, that if we live long enough, we will all face disability. When I write as a parent, as Laura has gotten older, nothing about us without us has a very specific and pointed ethical sense for me, which is to say, I have to take care in representing Laura, in not speaking over her and not speaking for her, and most of all, speaking with her consent. She is very aware of this interview, and she's reminded me of it, that I have it at four o'clock today and these things. And she is interested in this, and she's okay with me writing about her, but I always ask. Like, and this goes down to the smallest things. Like if, you know, we go out on the canoe, I take a picture. If, if I want to like share it on social media, I always ask her if she even looks unsure is like, no, that's, that's, that's your call. So it's a matter of consent. Now on, you mentioned on the other side of things in the uh, biotechnological production, the sphere of uh, tech culture. I don't know. I don't know that world, but it seems to me just kind of spitballing it. It seems like if people with disabilities are are part of the development of the technologies, that they are more likely to meet the actual needs of people in the world. Follow-up question. I'm just curious. Do you think that in the sphere of biotechnological production, that nothing about us without us is taken up with the same kind of scrutiny for intellectual disability versus physical ability? Do you think that there is some different allotment of attention and listening that happens in that context? Or do you think that we can talk about intellectual and physical disability in the same language with the same kind of conclusions? I don't think we can. I can't speak to, you know, the world of tech culture uh, so much, but I, I do think, you know, just drawing back, it seems pretty obvious to me that intellectual disability is more stigmatized at the moment than physical disability. And, you know, one way to gauge this is just to look at our insults. Uh, idiot, moron, imbecile, retard. What's interesting to me is that these all have been, and I'm not the first to point this out, but these have all been diagnoses and they have moved from the diagnostic world into ordinary speech. 
with respect to the book, one thing I made a point of doing was quoting people with Down syndrome and not, not just things they said, but um, things they wrote, books they had written. I wanted to make point out that intellectual people with intellectual disability have things to say and should be listened to. I think that for many people, even the idea of soliciting the opinions of people with intellectual disabilities seems like impossible to conceive of. So I wanted to maybe try and throw a little wrench in that. I wanted to pick up on something that you noted, which is that if you want to know where the importance of a culture or cultures thinking about something is, look at their insults. And of course, this is a question deeply tied to the significance of language and the way in which language both creates and demonstrates our reality. You have talked about in your writing that persuasion as well begins with the nouns and the way that technology is named. And I'm a scholar of language. So as you can imagine, when you start talking about nouns and when you start talking about language as indicative of where culture is, uh, and and if you make the, the the claim as you do that language plays an important role in technological culture and production, I get very excited. So I jumped at that. So so help me make a case for attending to the importance of nouns in particular and language more broadly in the debates around disability and technology. As we've been seeing, you know, in this wide-ranging conversation, this is just a, such a vast subject. And so, as a writer, you know, trying to to focus, I tried to to narrow that down a little bit. And one thing, one way I narrowed down my inquiries was to look at the way that experts talk to lay people, especially when the experts have an interest, a vested interest, for whatever you know, by profit or whatever other reason, in convincing people that a new technology is a good thing. So I'm interested in specifically in the persuasion that moves from expert to layperson. And to me, it was really important to look just at the basic unit of persuasion, the noun. How is a technology named? You know, one genetic counselor, Robert Resta, pointed out that ultrasound is also non-invasive. In fact, I mean, since NIPT involves a blood draw, blood draw it's arguably more invasive. But to say it's non-invasive is not a neutral thing because if you look at the marketing materials over the past, you know, say eight, nine years, there's a continual contrast between an IPT, which is based on a blood draw, and say amnio, which poses a small but but real risk of miscarriage. And so to call something NIPT as opposed to, I don't know, you know, maternal blood sampling or something, highlights a contrast with a different kind of test and frames the NIPT as safer. It is, in other words, it is part of a system of persuasion. The one technology that's not directly applied to humans I talk about in the book is called de-extinction. That's the effort to use biotechnology to bring back um, so-called extinct critters like the woolly mammoth. So the phrase de-extinction already suggests that that can, in fact, be done. It subtly frames the whole enterprise as possible. So when the very words we're, we're using dispose us in a certain way and interact with the, the rest of the persuasive apparatus, I think it helps us to be at least aware of that so that we know the difference between information and persuasion, and so that we know when information or what looks like information is blurring into persuasion. Okay, I, I promise that this interview won't be entirely about language and literature, but I wanted to ask you still to talk a little bit more and expand on what you're saying here, because in your book, you point to metaphor as a key persuasive tool. Say more, what are metaphors? And why are they so key as a persuasive tool? What metaphors, in your view, are essential to developing the concepts and frames we use to understand disability and tech? So for this one, again, I want to go back to the, the mainline era of eugenics. So Celeste Condit, a scholar who wrote a book called The Meanings of the Gene, has written a, a book of how we've talked about genes, how they've been framed. And she looks at the mainline era of eugenics and says that the central metaphor was stock breeding. Essentially, you could breed better people the way you breed better stock. And she talks about all the advantages of this, this metaphor, which is to say that it was instantly legible to 
people in rural areas for whom stock breeding was a normal and natural part of life. It uh, condensed a lot of complicated genetics into an easy to grasp metaphor and so on and so forth. So if you look at that example, you can understand that metaphors are key to persuasion because they can explain and persuade at once. And this goes back to this idea about, you know, the persuasion that's directed from experts to lay people. When you're talking about new biotechnologies that are complicated, you need a way to reduce it down so that a larger audience can understand it. In uh, 2018, for example, the, as you probably know, He Kui, a Chinese scientist, uh, went ahead and used CRISPR, a, a, what's often called a word processor for genomes, for uh, twins who were born and now presumably are are alive and hopefully healthy somewhere. In his announcement, he referred to what he did as a gene surgery. So this is another example of likening the unfamiliar, which is uh, genetically engineering people, to something that we're all familiar with, which is surgery and which is done for the purpose of health. The metaphor frames these kinds of projects as an acceptable means to an end. They make it powerful, feasible, reliable, and familiar. So metaphors in that sense are very powerful and are central to persuasion. I want to ask you about this CRISPR gene surgery and more broadly, maybe uh, some of the predictive biotechnologies or technologies that are aimed at humans before they're even born. A lot of your writing deals with the complexities of these kind of predictive biotechnologies and the tests that predict as you show are often sometimes even determined before a child is born, that child's life abilities and how that child's personhood will be framed. I wonder if you could help us think a little bit about the implications of these new and developing technologies for what we understand to be the nature of the human do predictive biotechnologies change our ideas about ourselves or maybe even our fates or our limits and or our possibilities? Is this dimension of science changing what we understand to be the human or the self? So my short answer is unquestionably, but in ways impossible to predict. Part of me wants to plead that that question is so far above my pay grade. I mean, really, I, I you know, describe myself as like a, a poet who wandered away from his enclosure. So I'm not super great at theorizing uh, the human or the self, but sure, I'll, I'll take a whack at it. Just specifically to the extent that new biotechnologies often approach uh, disability from a curative frame or a preventive frame, I'd say that that is not a neutral one. The practical effect of that, as and I can attest to this, and many many other parents of uh, children with genetic disorders can uh, attest to this, is that one can be blamed for the birth of a child with a preventable disability. For us, you know, I mean, it's it's the Northwest, so most people are really really nice. But there was, in one case, the kind of accusative questions like, "Well, why didn't you test?" The very fact of a technology that makes a certain outcome an option means that people can be tagged as irresponsible for having such a child. And there are there are a few bioethicists who, in fact, say that there is an obligation in such a case not to have such a child. This can take the utilitarian form of like, well, this child is uh, costly and a drain of resources. In any case, it's those things are pretty far from what I would see as a society where as many people as possible belong. But to the broader question of does this dimension of science change what we understand to be the self? Absolutely. If, for example, we move forward as some want us to with inheritable genetic modification of people, which is to say using CRISPR or another tool to alter the embryo for whatever purpose in such a way that that child's descendants and that child's descendants will, will have that alteration. That would completely change what we understand human to mean. It would literally change the human, but would, it would also be a huge shift in the role of technology itself in our lives and its allowable scope. You know, one thing that I caught when you were answering that question was this idea that personhood and the nature of the human has been frequently exacerbated by biotechnology, which has created an us and them separation between those with disability and those without. 
do you think that there's a possibility that biotechnology could do the inverse, that it could actually instead bridge this gap? I think it's possible, but I don't think the change will come from biotechnology. I think that it's more a matter that that will come from culture and specifically from activists. And that if the common sense of who can belong and how many kinds of bodies are okay changes, then I think that biotech will necessarily uh, follow along with that. It's interesting. To, I mean, to me, for-profit biotech interventions are almost necessarily conservative. And I, I don't mean conservative in a political right and left sense. I mean that if if they're going to have the greatest market, they have to reflect what people believe to be the case now, right? And so to some extent, even though these new interventions are kind of have a sheen of the future to them, they actually reflect the present. Well, this leads me right into my next question, which is, I know that I promised that I was done with questions about uh, literature or questions that have a literary dimension, but I have to ask one more question because you're comments about prediction and speculation lead me right into my thinking about science fiction. When I teach ethical technology, I structure the course around science fiction because I have a theory that science fiction is part of the ecosystem of technological production. So many of our most important technological innovations are ones that were first imagined or conceived of in fictional contexts. And oftentimes, as I see it, technologists draw from what writers and filmmakers or, or artists imagine in order to conceptualize and then design what become our technological realities. And we as readers and consumers of those science fiction oftentimes imagine our own experiences with new science and technological innovations by framing them and understanding them in the narratives that we know. I'm thinking of the moment that you cite the brave new world of IVF, which of course references the selective breeding technologies and practices imagined in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And how amazing is it, by the way, that a dystopian novel should serve as the basis for proposing scientific and technological advancement? Or to cite another example of how our realities sometimes come out of science fiction or are contextualized by science fiction, I just think about how many people right now are telling me that the movie Contagion is their reference point for thinking about COVID-19. Or to cite another example, a direct lineage between science fiction and technology, the idea for the cell phone came to the inventor of, the te of that technology, Martin Cooper, from Star Trek, where the character Captain Kirk uses a communicator to wirelessly contact other ships across the galaxy. I, I could cite a million more examples here, but I cite these examples to demonstrate how frequently science fiction becomes embedded in our factual reality as ways to predict, to create, that they become these almost predictive technologies in and of themselves, these science fictions, I mean. I wanted to ask you how you understand this ecosystem between science fiction and science engineering, and how is this ecosystem of science fiction and engineering perhaps significant for the technologies engaged with disability? That is a great question. It's funny to look at science fiction from, you know, long ago, like from the original Star Trek, when like, you know, a flip phone was the summit of achievement. From the book specifically, I wrote about uh, the Princeton biologist, Lee Silver. He had a book called Remaking Eden. And that book is interspersed with these kind of scenarios in which he imagines people uh, using future reproductive technologies. And he has this one uh, scene where a couple is looking at a computer and picking out attributes for their child. You know, what what do they want? You know, and so years later, he co-founded a company called Gene Peaks, which is based on looking at virtual children. So in, in that case, the you can trace a straight line between a, a sci-fi moment and an actual company that exists in the world. As a side note, I've taught many like science-oriented students over the years. And I've often gotten the sense from them that they think that science is real in the way that literature is not. That science and technology are real because they make real things happen and they're certain and literature is just like, you know, subjective and whatever you want. But the fact is that narrative is woven in from the beginning. You have to imagine a technology before you develop it, as all of your examples show. 
So to me, it's partly about, you know, how do these disciplines stand in relation to each other? And to me, I see narrative as woven in, in terms of the things that I was writing about in the book, science fiction has a persuasive role to play, especially in the sort of the more extreme examples of uh, those advocating for human genetic modification. So a pretty standard and to me kind of tired trope is the idea that we'll start engineering ourselves and then we'll just keep on going. And at some point far distant in the galaxy, there will be these beings to whom we are as worms, you know, that they're, they'll have such unimaginably smart giant brains. It's almost as if like, we'll just keep building, adding rungs to the great chain of being and just keep going up and up and up and up. That's a science fiction moment. And it's a persuasive one. It's interesting to me, of course, that it's centered on intellect, which is the the core thread to me running from the age of eugenics to now. What's it trying to persuade us to do? It's part of a persuasive message that these technologies are powerful that they will continue to progress, like they they presuppose that you can keep on making beings that are smarter and smarter and smarter, um, that they'll work. It's part of a, a generally pro-enhancement narrative. Um, that said, that I think sci-fi has a huge role to play in critiquing technology as well. For example, the TV series Black Mirror, uh, the movie Ex Machina. I wrote a fair bit about the movie The Amazing Spider-Man which seems both kind of entranced by the possibilities of um, of genetic engineering and at the same time to want to offer a warning. And in literature, you could look at George Saunders' short stories. I come to all of this from just this deeply pro-science and pro-technology standpoint. And that may sound weird from the cautionary note I tend to emphasize, but you know, my wife is a research scientist. My dad was an engineer. I believe in the possibilities of science to learn and teach us about the world, to explore it systematically. And I believe in the possibilities of technology to make it better. I'm just interested in what ideas about the human underlie all that effort. And as I frequently point out, I think it's very important to note that the humanities and the sciences in which we frequently put the technological studies are historically not typically divided. It's been only very recently that we have made that division. I note to my students when I teach this class that the word technology comes from the Greek word techne, which actually means art or craft. So historically, that, that division does not hold up to scrutiny. I think that both the humanities and the sciences share ideally a commitment to fact-based claims to the reality of concepts and to scrupulously assessing evidence in favor of a claim. What we count as evidence sometimes changes, and our training frequently changes too, I I think, across that divide. I had on the podcast here the bioethicist Art Kaplan, um, who talked about how he, in making the move from a student of medicine to a philosopher, noticed how deeply his cohort in medicine were trained to essentially respect authority, to reproduce the answers given by their mentors and advisors, whereas in the humanities were taught, I think, essentially to hold up a critical lens to those answers and to scrutinize them, to challenge them. So it might be, you know, I think as deeply and as core as the way that we are trained to think about our realities in the way that we are trained to critique them. You mentioned that you present this to students and frequently they seem to think that science fiction or the humanities broadly so does not have the same kind of conceptual or material reality as the sciences. What do you tell them and how do they walk away at the end of your quarter system when they take your class? Do you change any minds? I should clarify that would be more for my uh, past experiences teaching undergrads as opposed to what I do now, which is teaching writers, MFAs, who I think are well beyond that. I know I was thinking more, for example, my history teaching freshman comp, you know, down in the grammar minds and would have students be like, well, I'm a bio major. I, I can't do this English stuff. I don't get it. And what struck me as un fortunate about that was that one, that they had already pigeonholed themselves. 
that this disciplinary culture that Kaplan talked about and that we are kind of ruled by, they had accepted. But two, that I think that they were missing what is most exciting about science, that it's a creative and questioning endeavor. As for what they thought at the end of the term, I like to think that I got through to them. And just from a, a teacher's perspective, I mean, there are ways to look at that and say, okay, so you, you know, you can dissect a mouse, you can dissect a text. On the one side, it's all objective, and the other side, it's all interpretation. One tries to break that down and says, it's like, well, there's actually judgment interpretation in what you decide to study and what, what counts as important. For me, I have a lot of sympathy with that point of view. And, and I think maybe that's why in my own writing, I like reading scientists and I like reading historians where if, you know, if you want to know where they learned a fact, you go to the end notes and you find out, you know, which box of, of documents and which part of the library they found it, like you can trace it. I wanted to circle back to our major topic here, which is the intersection between technology and disability. And I think one thing that you get at in exploring that intersection is that it rests on a foundation of an ongoing debate about how much of who we are is due to what was formerly called nature, and I think now is talked about in our technological age as genes, and how much of ourselves is sovereign to the collective nature of what we would call experience. Does thinking about disability and technology change how we might navigate that question? And what about new technologies? Are they changing how we might understand that relationship in the self between genetic or natural selves on the one hand and experiential selves on the other hand? I think that to your first question, you know, does thinking about disability and technology change how we navigate these questions? I think it might. I think it depends on how the question is framed and how you think about genes. So, for example, if you see humans as primarily genetic creatures, primarily expressions of this code, then you can, for example, see people with genetically based disabilities as mistakes, as coding errors. And you can see the job of technology as to either detect those errors so that individual can be prevented or to repair them. But if you take a different view of genes if you if you forswear that nature nurture divide in the first place and say that they are always interlaced then i think that that gets harder so to me i would just question in the first place that popular division between nature or nurture that genes are always in interaction so i think that it's even prior to thinking about disability and technology question is how are we thinking about genes themselves how important is this code that we inherit i think it's very interesting as you're talking i heard you say incorrect code or coded wrong or coded badly and of course that's a metaphor that is drawn from the very recent technology of coding so maybe it is as I don't want to say the word simple because it's not simple at all, but maybe it's as integral or radical as what metaphors we start off with and what metaphors are available for us to make sense of our discourse and, and our experiences and what we're talking about. Because if you start off by talking about human beings as having erroneous code, then the implications of that are obvious, right? You fix the code. If you start off with a metaphor about biological diversity, then you end up with very different conclusions than that. So maybe it really does have to do with what metaphors and axioms you start off with and what path they're going to lead you down almost inevitably or necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. And this goes back to the, the general project of the book, which is to say, you know, what language are we using and what are what are the assumptions? What are the implications? I would say that, you know, both of the things are true. We are biologically based beings. We do inherit DNA from our biological parents. That's how we exist. At the same time, we live on the experiential level and we understand our histories and think about and retell our histories and stories. And so it can be very hard to hold those two levels of analysis in a single view, but they're both true. And I think to ignore one or the other is, is probably risky, but to focus only on one is going to be incomplete. With respect to new technologies, you know, 
how are they affecting our understanding of genetic selves, experiential selves? And I would say yes. One example is direct-to-consumer ancestry testing. I didn't write about that in the book because I was more focused basically on reproductive technology. But that is a testing that promises to link those two levels of analysis, our family histories, you know, what we've been told to the code that we inherit. And I've written a little bit about this. I think that some of the problems with advertising for, say, NIPT could also be found in the advertising for ancestry testing. But beyond that, it has value for people. One incredible book that I really value is by the scholar Alondra Nelson, wrote a book called The Social Life of DNA. And she talks specifically about how African-Americans trying to make sense of the diaspora and the total loss of stories that was entailed by chattel slavery, some turn to ancestry testing to try and reconnect, to try and understand their history anew, because it's, it's kind of a reparative effort. That's a, a great example of how it's really hard to look at any one of these technologies, you know, from uh, prenatal testing to CRISPR and make blanket statements about good or bad. You know, NIPT, as many people have found it useful, DTC testing, ancestry testing, there, there's some parts that you could call sketchy, but people find it meaningful. So it's that complexity that I love to kind of dig into. I wanted to circle back to the idea of the individual that we have been talking about and really circling around, because I think one dimension of the individual and one dimension of the representational questions and concerns that we've been talking about is their manifestation in political formations, and in particular, our political formation, democracy. Uh, democracy is, of course, radically premised on representation, which we've talked about extensively already. But in the context of narrative and in the context of scholarship, I think it's particularly important to bring into focus that political dimension in that phrase, nothing about us without us. But of course, representation has profound and material impact on on the political dimension. So I would be remiss if we didn't talk about it. Do you see a relationship between democracy, personhood, representation on the one hand, and biotechnology and disability on the other? Yes. To take the long view, you could see the American project, if you're being optimistic anyway, as this ongoing, very much unfinished progress in expanding who counts, you know, from property owning white men and outward. Disability is part of that effort. When you talk about representation, I see that breaking down into two aspects. One, how people are re represented by others, and two, how they represent themselves. So that's something that I've thought about a lot, specifically with respect to Laura. And having a daughter with Down syndrome makes clear how far we've come and how far we have to go. To talk about democracy, personhood, representation, biotechnology, and disability, what I'm hoping for specifically for my daughter is some measure of belonging. Where that's concerned, biotechnology has very little to do with it. Like, you know, she's 19. We're thinking about work. You know, she's just started her first job. We're thinking about the possibility of independent living, you know, and we're thinking about a broader cultural acceptance. You know, biotechnology doesn't have a lot to do with that because biotechnology focuses on people with genetic disorders as possibilities, not as living citizens. The biotechnology pieces may be not so uppermost in my mind there. The other reason it is hard to for me to think about those things together is that in the midst of a pandemic, the, the biotech piece, at least the kind that I talk about, is just not that relevant. People are not thinking that much about CRISPR right now. There's just something much, much more urgent. And yet at the same time, the crises expose things about a society. And so if you look at some guidelines and states and hospitals for triage, so people with disabilities are lower on the list because their quality of life is presumed to be less. That's something that has very much less to do with biotechnology per se, but it has a lot to do with democracy and personhood and who gets to be a full person. One last question. You write that every technology transforms our understanding of ourselves and the world. I know that we're in the middle of a pandemic that might change the dimensions of how you would answer that question and perhaps particularly foreground 
technologies that are right now changing our understanding of ourselves and the world. If you could, I wonder if you could talk about what technologies or which technologies are right now changing our understanding of ourselves and the world. And will they change us, in your view, for the better or for the worse? And if, I think, as you pointed to, technologies can do both, how can we ensure that they do change us for the better? I'll think about two technologies here. One is um, prenatal testing. Unquestionably, the advent of prenatal testing has altered our conception of family and even of the human, right? If a condition is tested for, that's not a neutral thing. It already frames that condition as a risk, as an abnormality, and in opposition to the, you know, presumably normal child. Now, what will happen with that, I don't know. So if we assume, as seems reasonable, that we will be able to discover more and more with more and more certainty about future children during a pregnancy, what will that mean? Will that mean that more and more conditions will be added to the idea of abnormality? Or does it mean that, and as I hope it might, that there will be more acceptance of variation and difference that will understand that we all have our own syndromes, as my wife likes to say. I don't know where, where that'll go. And, and to be honest, part of what I tried to do in this book was to not forecast or predict because I find forecasting and predicting to be so endemic a part of the discussion of predictive technologies. No one knows what's going to happen. But I see those as two possible alternatives. So the second technology is not CRISPR exactly, but modification of our genomes, whether through CRISPR or some other technology. I think if that's applied in an inheritable way, and I was talking about this a little bit before, it alters what we consider given, it alters the acceptable boundary of technological application. I have very different thoughts about those two examples. I think that prenatal testing framed in the right way is already a benefit for many, can be a benefit for most, which is to say, say, drop the advertising that's meant to push uptake and instead have the information come from medical professionals who are sensitive to the real lives of people with disabilities. I think that that would help make it become a benefit. With respect to inheritable genetic modification of people, I don't see a way forward at this time, if only on technical grounds, but also on the grounds that we would be experimenting on the children thus produced and on their children. And so I don't see that as at this time redeemable with a different framing or a different approach, whereas I think that prenatal testing can, in fact, you know, serve more just ends. You reminded me as you were talking about prediction as of the predicament between those of us who believe that prediction is a very low form of scholarship and the counterpoint put forth by the scholar, uh, Carlo Ginsberg, who says that, you know, our realities are not shaped as the weather is shaped. We're not the weather, meaning that we can't just throw up our hands and say, we don't know what the future is, or the future is in contradistinction to that inevitable. We actually have the ability to intervene into a future that is on its way to becoming. And I wonder if you could maybe comment on what you would want the next generation of biotechnologists to know or think about or learn about or understand or value as they go on their path to designing these technologies and intervening into our reality. Well, that's a great question. I kind of touched on this in the book where I, I wrote the description is not just a neutral or objective thing. It's a force in the world. The way we describe the world shunts it in one direction or another. And that's why I'm so interested in persuasion, interested in the way one digital technology, which is, you know, our new technologies are essentially information technologies, are transferred into things like social media. What I would want future tech developers to know, I would want them to meet the people whom their technologies affect. And not just the consumers, but if their technologies have to do with future disabled people, I would 
ideally hope that they would meet and know in a more than trivial way disabled people. I think that, and this gets back to representation. If people's voices are genuinely represented throughout the society and not only at the margins, if in fact the people developing technologies are disabled people and has been pointed out, you know, if we're talking about cyborgs, people with prostheses, people with other technological interventions are our best source of wisdom on living well with technology. I would say it's a matter, I don't know if I have a a lesson for them beyond, you know, what is the human impact on this of, of what is being developed, but it's also a matter of who's doing the developing and who are they listening to. Thank you, George. Thank you. And please thank Laura for allowing us a glimpse into her and your family's life. I will certainly do that.